Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we discuss the latest from Ukraine. This is the most dangerous moment for Europe, arguably since the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. President Putin is holding a gun to NATO's head, telling NATO to back off, and so this is really dangerous. Plus, on this week's Global Countdown, we head to Romania and we speak with musician and photographer Brian Adams. I just wanted to try to create a snapshot of perhaps what it might be like behind the stage, on the stage, traveling, in a hotel, all these sort of scenarios and present that as the on-the-road concept for Pirelli and that's what we did. All that and much, much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Let's start in Ukraine. The US President Joe Biden and other Western leaders have warned that there will be enormous consequences for the world should Russia invade Ukraine. But how likely is it that Moscow will give the order to send troops into Ukrainian territory? Earlier this week on the briefing, we spoke with General Sir Richard Chirev, who served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in Europe between 2011 and 2014. Sir Richard is also the author of War with Russia, an urgent warning from senior military command. This is the most dangerous moment for Europe, arguably since the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. President Putin is holding a gun to NATO's head, telling NATO to back off, to extract the alliance from those countries of Eastern Europe, which joined the alliance after the collapse of the, the Warsaw Pact. He has got really significant forces and highly capable forces massing on the borders of Ukraine, both from the east and from the north. And he's got limited time. He cannot keep them there indefinitely. It's very expensive to maintain forces at high readiness for such a long time. He would want, I think, to do something before the spring thaw. And so this is really dangerous. When you served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in, in Europe, did you, did you ever think that we would one day get into this situation? What was clear after the invasion of Crimea in 2014 was that Putin had brought the politics of blood and iron back into Europe. He had changed the boundaries of Europe by force. That was a real wake-up moment, or should have been a real wake-up moment for NATO and the West. I think before that, you could argue that the invasion of Georgia in 2008 was another indicator. Now, the reality is that Putin threatens Europe in a way that was not the case up in, in the early years of this, of this, of this century. What conversations will the NATO command be having at the moment? What do you think? Well, I hope they're considering what they need to do to demonstrate really determined resolve that NATO will stop at nothing to defend the alliance, the land borders, the airspace and the sea lines of communication of the alliance. Uh, they will be thinking very carefully about what they should do bilaterally for Ukraine. I think they cannot do anything as an alliance, but their most important focus must be on the defense of the alliance. So I would hope that they are considering the deployment of land forces to the Baltic states, 
and to Northeast Romania, as well as the deployment of air and naval assets, which we have already seen. Can you tell us more about what NATO can do should Russian troops cross the border? NATO can do very little if if, not, if Russian troops cross the border into Ukraine. Um, as I say, Ukraine is not part of the alliance, and the 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 the, the, the one certain trigger that would lead to World War III would be for NATO to get involved as an alliance in the defense of Ukraine. So individual NATO nations, uh, such as the British and the Americans, can can ha- have been and will uh, quite rightly be, be supporting NATO uh, Ukraine with defensive weapons. But as I say, the most important thing is that NATO must make it quite clear to Russia that thus far, but absolutely no further. I think more broadly, what the the Western community, and this is not so much NATO, but more broadly, the Western political community must be doing is not only threatening Russia with the most swinging financial and economic sanctions and punitive measures, uh, but being prepared to carry them out. And there can be no no hint of any divisions within the alliance, the Western alliance, as to the nature of those, uh, the, the, the resolve and willingness of the alliance to, uh, to bear down on Russia financially and economically, because that will hurt, that will really hurt. And they should take no account of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the noise coming out of Russia, saying it'll hurt the West as much as it'll hurt Russia. It won't, it'll really hurt Russia. What are your thoughts about the response we've been getting from the West so far? Has it been adequate? We've been hearing threats of sanctions indeed, but is that enough? What else should we hear? It, it, it's been patchy, to be honest. I think President Biden dropped a, dropped a catch last week when he gave a hint that there was divisions about what an incursion might lead to. There can be no such talk. Um, and equally, there must be no, as I said earlier, there can be no 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 hint of division about the the willingness to impose really tough sanctions and the willingness to defend NATO. And as I say, the best signal for me would be the deployment of of ready la- of, of of land forces at high readiness to actually put boots on the ground in the Baltic states show our willingness to defend them, and equally show our willingness to defend against any incursion into, for example, northeast Romania and the Baltics in the, in the Black Sea region. Why has that not happened yet? Because it hasn't been the political will among the Western alliance. Finally, Sir Richard, your book imagined a war with, with Russia. Do you see any similarities in this situation compared to what you wrote about? Well, yes. Uh, I'm afraid the scenario of a of a of an incursion or an invasion into Ukraine preceded my uh, the attack that I discussed on the Baltic states. So thus far, it is eerily reminiscent. The difference is, uh, uh, you may not have read the book, but the difference is that the uh, the book ended relatively happily for the Western Alliance. I fear it will not be so happy if truth overtakes fiction. And this week we dispatched Monaco's Chris Chermak and Paige Reynolds to Kiev. And here they have the latest from Ukraine as the country contemplates a war with Russia. The latest has come from outside Ukraine, if you will. Uh, One of the, the main headlines this morning is that NATO and the United States have sent an official response to Russia about their laundry list of demands uh, that that have been placed on on NATO and the US in connection with this crisis over Ukraine. And the the key point of this is that the US and NATO have basically stressed that NATO remains open to membership. Uh, It's not going to close off membership to other nations, including Ukraine. That That is a key demand that Russia has had 
throughout this, one of the things that they have wanted in order for this crisis to, to be abetted. Um, in addition to that, though, the U.S. and uh, NATO have both stressed that the door remains open for diplomacy. They have proposed more military coordination uh, about things like forces posture in the Ukraine, more transparency on that uh, with Russia as well. So those are some of the key things that have been apparently uh, proposed in a written letter uh, to the Russians that uh, Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has talked about. We haven't heard too much of a response from the Russians at this point. Uh, one minister said they are considering the response. There was more bellicose rhetoric from some parliamentarians who said this was, you know, a complete rejection of uh, what what they were looking for and that the door was open uh, for them, so to speak, to do what they wanted at this point. So there is still a lot of uh, general concern in that sense, of course, which does come to, to Ukraine, uh, a potential worry that an invasion could be on the line, although it doesn't look like that's something that's going to be happening, uh, certainly in the next few days or weeks. Well, I mean, Ukrainian leaders are pushing back against that narrative. Is it because they're trying to avoid a panic? And is that working? That's that's exactly right. They have been pushing for the last few days, especially. They are. It is a very fine line to walk because, on the one hand, Ukraine is seeking and welcoming arms exports, security guarantees from the West. The U.S. has been delivering uh, a lot of a lot of weapons in the last few days to the U.S. in the event of an invasion. But they are also pushing back, particularly on this narrative that an invasion is imminent, if you will, as we've heard from some quarters uh, more more in the West when it comes to the U.S. and U.K. pulling some diplomatic support staff, for example. President Zelensky here and others stressed this week that panic really plays into Vladimir Putin's hands as well, sowing instability for Ukraine, its politics, and also its economy, for that matter. And in terms of whether it's worked, I mean, yes, in the sense that most people that you do speak to here on the ground in Kiev are really just very much going about their own lives. There is life in this city. People are out in restaurants, you know, and, and even if you do speak to Ukrainians who don't really know what to think, there is, of course, some concern. It's a dominant topic of conversation. They, they, they're, they're reading the tea leaves uh, on this as much as everyone else is. But at the same time, a lot of people also stressed really that this is nothing new, even if the world's attention has been somewhere else. Uh, Ukraine itself has effectively been at war for the last eight years in its east. And so this is really nothing new for them. They are planning contingencies, escape plans if needed. But there isn't really too much of a question about whether to stay or go at this point. And what do they want from the international community and its leaders? Well, in short, they want support, moral support, security support, uh, and economic support. One does get a sense here that the international attention is welcomed uh, at this time, particularly when there's talk of an invasion and you have to sort of stand strong and united. But at the same time, just calm down, don't be hasty, don't be afraid of visiting or particularly investing. That's one underreported aspect of this crisis is the impact on Ukraine's economy. Locals are still continuing opening new businesses that they talked about. They're not afraid to invest, but foreign investment has very much dried up in the last week. So it's really not just about weapons at this point. Yeah, and what about foreigners themselves who actually live in Ukraine, expats? I know that you've been speaking to a Swiss filmmaker in the country. Well, that is that is what's interesting, yes, Georgina, because on the one hand, expats or outside of the country investment has dried up. But the expats we've spoken to here are very much determined to stay. They, they love the city. They enjoy it. They feel a strong connection to the country, the city, its community 
and its future. And one example of that is uh, Mark Wilkins. He's a Swiss filmmaker and cultural sort of entrepreneur based here in Kiev. He spoke to Monaco's Paige Reynolds, uh, who's with me here in Kiev, and they spoke in, or we spoke in the the Naked Room. It's a modern art gallery that he co he co-founded, located in the heart of old Kiev, and he started by explaining why he came to the city in the first place. Kiev has a very great film crews, very affordable locations, and I, I shot a lot here and made friends and 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 started to kind of really enjoy the city, enjoy the community. But it was just like one of many cities I traveled to as a as a filmmaker. But then Maidan happened, 2013, 2014. I was actually just shooting some Vodafone commercial here, and then the, we couldn't use the locations anymore because the Bergrut, the 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 riot police was parking their cars in our location. And suddenly I started to understand what's actually happening here and what kind of what Ukraine's history is and where Ukraine is in Europe. And it was the first time in my life that I truly felt connected to a nation. It was so strange for me growing up in Switzerland and Germany. Nation is something bad, you know, nation is something conservative. Nation is something right wing, something I want to stay away as far as I can. But suddenly in Ukraine, I started to have great empathy with this very, in a way, on one hand old, on the other hand young nation who is struggling to define, redefine themselves and, and, and finding their own way. And so I was then living in New York, constantly online, reading the news, um, looking for reasons why I need to go to, to, to Kiev. And then, you know, the war started, Crimea was, was annexed and, and the war in the East started. And I started to be very like so fascinated impressed and touched that on one hand i saw a very creative young community like filmmakers musicians um, um painters entrepreneurs gastro gastronomy also it was you know i was not aware of that before in the soviet union there were no restaurants basically and suddenly in this war and in this bloody mess of the maidan revolution young nice restaurants community places popped up and i was just dropped everything, or not dropped, I packed everything. I, I sold my apartment in Berlin, the only asset I had, and um, moved to Kiev, moved to the street, because for me, this street here, Reitreska Street, is the street where everything is happening. The sense that I'm getting from you now is that there's such a vibrant scene here in the art sector. Obviously, we're here right now because there is a security situation to the east. Are conversations being had within these kind of cultural spheres about what's going to happen? Are people feeling skittish? Are people feeling like everything's going to be fine? What 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 is the mood sort of right now? You know, Ukraine is at war since 2014. It's nothing new that the Russian army is at, at our doorsteps. Of course, it was never so terrifying as it is right now. But there is a certain uh, mood of we just need to deal with it, you know, we just need to go through it. So there's no no panic, there is no, you know, there's, 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 there's absolutely fear, but everybody understands that we all need to move forward, you know, to drop everything now and leave what we are doing. This is exactly what Putin wants. Um, from my own perspective, I think the main reason of r lining up, um, you know, 130,000 soldiers at the border is to, um, destabilize our minds, to make us afraid, to make us panic, to make us stop um, developing the society, the social society um, of this country. Because the biggest 
threat to Putin's power is a successful Ukraine. If Ukraine becomes a successful um, nation with a functioning democracy and a, and a, a humanist um, European government community, the people in Russia and Kazakhstan and Belarus will finally not accept this um, yeah, auto autocratic powers they are being controlled by. So. I think Putin wants to avoid that Ukraine become successful to not create an inspiration for the people in Russia. And this is why we are, of course, you know, our car is, has the tank is full, we have an extra canister of petrol, we bought a flashlight and walkie-talkies, um, we, 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 we are ready to, to take off and drive towards the West any second. But at the same time, we are starting new projects and, and moving things forward. This is kind of our, our way of defense. So, Georgina, I think you really hear there the, the passion from Mark that, that comes from those, those expats who have lived here for, for a while. Um, and really this determination to kind of continue to stay uh, in, in the country at this point. Today, I can tell you, Georgina, we'll be, we'll be focusing a little bit more on the political side, hoping to speak to some parliamentarians, politicians potentially, about their view of what they want from the West at this point, what they want from NATO going forward. It'll be interesting to hear their perspective on some sort of way out of this crisis. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For this week's tall story, Emily Wider visits Istanbul's historic haunted house, which shifts from an office space during the week to an art gallery at weekends. Sitting elegantly on the European banks of the Bosphorus, the natural strait that runs through Istanbul, is Perili Koshk, in English, the haunted mansion. We'll get to how it got its name later. Originally known as the Yusuf Zia Pasha mansion, it's a stunning example of Istanbul's rich architectural heritage. The castle-like red brick building, complete with stained glass windows and a turret, sits on one of the narrowest points of the Bosphorus, offering a panoramic view from the rooftop. It's worth visiting just for the photo opportunities alone. From the nine-storey building, you can see both the Black Sea and the Marmara Sea and catch a glimpse of the hillside homes dotting the Asian side of the city. Up on the roof, on one side, you can marvel at modern design with a unique view of the Fatih Sultan Mehmet Bridge, also known as the Second Bosphorus Bridge, a giant slab of concrete connecting Europe with Asia. On the other side, admire the crumbling 15th-century medieval fortress Rumeli Hisseri, commissioned for an Ottoman siege of what was then known as Constantinople. The building is now the headquarters of Turkish industrial group Borisan Holding, as well as hosting its museum for contemporary art, on the weekends, after the office workers have left with tidy desks, you can visit the ever-changing exhibition lineup with new media at its core as artists experiment with light, sound and video. Its founders say they hope to increase interest in contemporary art in Turkey. But perhaps just as enjoyable is the chance to snoop through the offices as you make your way through the sprawling space to the rooftop. On every floor, each neat meeting room and generous workspace is adorned with artwork from the Borisan Contemporary Art Collection. 
Borisan claimed to be the first in the world pioneering this unique office museum concept. If I could describe my dream office, this would be it. It's a calming, creative space, featuring interesting design, striking artwork, beautifully crafted furniture, and of course, those views. The luminescent waters of the Bosphorus bursting through big, bright windows. If you worked here, trust me, you wouldn't want to work from home. Construction for the mansion began in 1910 under Yusuf Zia Pasha, the Ottoman ambassador to the United States, but stopped when the Ottoman Empire joined the First World War and construction workers were forced to trade in their tools for weapons. In 1995, a restoration process began led by Turkish architect Hakan Kuran, who took great care to restore the stone and brick facade, staying true to the original design, even importing the bricks from England. There are several tales as to why the house is haunted. After construction abruptly halted during the war, its second and third floors remained empty for decades, prompting the locals to wander as the wind whistled through the empty space. Rumour has it, the workers who were building the mansion claimed to have seen the late wife of the Ottoman Pasha and heard the faint tinkling sounds of a piano. Many of the city's old mansions are being torn down, replaced with modern villas, high-rise apartments or soulless shopping malls. This century-old manor on the banks of the Bosphorus is both a reminder of Istanbul's grand past and an expression of the city's modern creativity. This week I also had the pleasure to speak on the stack with musician Brian Adams. Yes, the same musician from Everything I Do, I Do It For You. He's also a photographer and in fact he photographed this year's Pirelli calendar. He tells me more about it. Brian Adams, what a pleasure talking to you. The legendary musician and now photographer as well, of course. But Brian, what an amazing uh, gig, you know, to do the Pirelli calendar. I mean, this is such an iconic calendar. It must be a privilege. How was the involvement? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? How, how did that work? I had a friend who had been working with them over the years. And one day I just sort of said, do you think I could send them an idea for a calendar and said yeah of course you could so i presented an idea and then didn't hear much about it but i i managed to get some contacts with people there and a few years ago when the new calendar came out i just thought i was going to call and i called and he says ah oh, well, you know what it's very good you're calling can you come to milan we'd like to talk to you <laughs> and that's how it happened that's amazing. And, and, and I mean, and I've seen, you know, the, the pictures. I think they're very close to your heart in a way. Was the, inspiration, was the inspiration kind of this life of a rock star and even touring a little bit as well, right? Well, it's the one thing that nobody could do during the whole pandemic when, you know, all, all the musicians were grounded and couldn't, you know, in some cases couldn't even leave our houses. But I mean, I thought what would be really good and quite optimistic would be to talk about you know, being on the road. And with the concept of on the road, 
I presented it to Pirelli, and they they loved it because, of course, it's their business being on the road. So that tied into to musicians, of course, made perfect sense, and to the point where they asked me to write a song to <laughs> to help launch the calendar, which I did also, which is called On the Road. And I just wanted to try to create a snapshot of perhaps what it might be like behind the stage, on the stage, traveling, in a hotel, all these sort of scenarios, and present that as the on-the-road concept for Pirelli. And that's what we did. And let's look at, uh, you know, the people you photographed. I mean, what a selection. I mean, from Cher to Iggy Pop, you have new names like Kalyu Shiz as well, which is, you know, she's amazing. Did you knew many of them before, by the way, Brian? Because you were in the same industry. Well, I, I, let's see, who did I know? I mean, I'd met Jennifer Hudson before, and the rest I didn't know. And, of course, I knew of them, but I didn't know them. So that was that was cool. I Actually, I'd, I'd, I'd met Rita way, way back uh, when she started her career in an airport. And she came and said hello to me. So we sort of chuckled about that at the time. And that's it, really. So it was, it was all new acquaintances. And it's interesting, of course, the Pirelli calendar has, you know, they're changing throughout the years as well. Because, for example... Oh, of course, you, it's a big change now. I mean, you big can't... Big change. There's no more super naked supermodels. That's gone. For example, you have Iggy Pop as well, so there's Man as well. So well, I got you know, Iggy naked instead. Exactly. I mean, which is not a bad thing, right? <laughs> no, <clears throat> he looks great naked, and he looked particularly great when he we painted him silver. And my, one of my favorites, I have to say, Brian, because I'm I'm a big fan of Cher. I saw actually her live in London two years ago. Oh wow! Uh, I mean, she's such an icon. I mean, and and she's still. I can see that she loves to be photographed in a way, right? She's great, and she was so easy to work with, and nice, and her team were great. Everybody. It was just really easy. Could have spent way more time with her. Where was the shot, the shoot, sorry? Well, it was shot in three places. The majority of it was shot in Los Angeles because that's where most people are. And because of COVID, we couldn't really get people to fly in. And so we shot we shot most of it in two places in L.A. One was the Palace Theater in Los Angeles, and the other was at the Chateau Marmont, which is a hotel. And... I shot Sweetie in Capri uh, shortly afterwards, and we were stuck for one more person because of time, and so I did some self-portraits. That's amazing. And Brian, one question, of course, you're already a very respected photographer as well. How do you kind of mix your career as a photographer and also as a musician? Because you are actually at the moment literally on the road. You're preparing for your European tour at the moment, right? Do you think, do do you reserve, okay, this is my time to do music and this is my time of photography or do you actually combine both? I don't know, in your spare time during touring, which I don't believe it's it's a lot of spare time, uh, but how do you combine both of those careers? Well, I, I tour differently to a lot of other people. I go out for two weeks a month, or I used to before the pandemic, and I've been doing that for 20 years. So I would go for two weeks, then I'd go home for two weeks, two weeks, go home for two weeks, two weeks on the tour, come home for two weeks. And that worked perfectly for me because I didn't, I think there's something about being out all the time that becomes quite stressful. So by breaking it up, I have time for other things. So photography, family, chilling out, all those kind of things are happening when I'm not touring. 
I mean, and those things are very important as well. And you have could be the most important. Absolutely. And you have a new album coming out in March as well, which is super exciting. Yes, 11th of March, right? Yes, it's called So Happy It Hurts. I like the title already. Yeah, it's a very up record. And um, it was recorded sort of in between the gigs. You know what? I was going to tell you something that during the whole pandemic, photography was the one thing that I, I could do all the time. It was, uh, it, it, I was getting more calls to do pictures than I was to, to go on tour. <laughs> so it isn't it interesting that it sort of came around that way. But also when I had, when I had my downtime, I was, I was making music and that's why I have this album coming out. And where are you based these days, Brian? Is it is not still in Canada? Is well, it? no. I mean, I've, I've been in Canada a lot lately because I've been uh, looking after my mother. Um, she's 93 now. So it's, it's, uh, it's what you've got to do as a, as a son. And we were talking before how much, I mean, you have a lot of international fans as well. You know, I'm from Brazil and you said you have a lot of fans over there. But what about here in Europe? I mean, you're, you're starting in Portugal as well. I have a feeling there will be a lot of Brazilians in the audience in Portugal. I hope so. And, you know, Portugal has always been an incredible place for me because I used to live there. Oh, really? Yeah, I lived there for four years. And so I think the Portuguese think of me as sort of the forgotten son. And if I'm there, people come up to me and they start talking Portuguese to me, you know, thinking that I'm I'm a local. I mean, you're almost there. You mean you spoke a little bit of Portuguese with me, you know? I might believe you. Falso um pequeno. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, Brian, one, one thing about the Pirelli, just coming back very quickly to the Pirelli calendar. I mean, it's such an iconic. But how do people get hold of a copy as well? Because uh. it's 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 an you know, it, it's kind of mysterious, right? I mean, it's not really such an easy thing. You just well, go and buy it in, the, in no, your local... No, you can't. You can't. You have to hope that somebody's going to sell it on eBay. I, no, I noticed the other day, because a friend of mine was asking, he's like, I went on eBay and I, you know, it was a thousand dollars to buy the calendar. I said, well, that's it. You know, the, it's, a, it's, it's an exclusively intercompany thing that they do. And because it's so exclusive and it's because it's so rare, I think it's become iconic because of that. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And on this week's episode of On Design, the team turned their attention to the Norwegian concept of Dugnad, the centuries-old cultural concept encourages participation to reach communal goals. And its ethos, the Oslo-based studio MAD Architecture, applies to its projects, so much so that it has opened a new exhibition on the topic at Berlin's AD's Architecture Forum. To find out more, Monaco's Charlie Fumer Court sat down with Yoni Klock, a partner at the firm, to discuss the concept and its relationship to the built environment. Yoni began by explaining what Dugnad is and why it matters. 
Dugnad is a term that's used throughout Norway for everything from small collaborations to big movements within the people. So it stems back actually from the 14th century, from when rural communities came together to build projects and everyone sort of participated at their own ability towards a common goal. So it's just gathering people to try to do something together. They participate with the best of their own ability or their own skill set. For us, it's all about a mindset where people come together and share their knowledge and try to improve, in this case, the world is a big word, but uh, we chose this name and this topic for our exhibition because we see that the building industry have been going the wrong way. We're a major factor in the pollution of the world and the climate crisis. We wanted to share four of our most sustainable projects or four projects that we work with sustainability in different ways to be able to sort of inspire and engage people towards building and thinking more sustainable and thus contributing to the Dugnad. Obviously, it is a quite a wide ranging term. It can be applied in, in many different instances, but is it often applied to the built environment or is that quite a new concept? Um, well, uh, it's a new concept when you think about it in sort of more building projects. But uh, like in Norway, if you live in a city dwelling, there's a common courtyard. A very common way to fix your lawn and courtyard is to have a dugnad so that someone will rake leaves and someone will make some food. And it's been used very physically. And also sort of during the COVID-19 situation now, um, the term dugnad has been used for everyone participating at their own best, staying at home or following the governmental recommendations. So it's been, yeah, it's all about contributing. So it's been used for almost everything. And how does MAD integrate, uh, obviously as an architect practice, how does MAD integrate Dugnad into, into its approach? Through sharing, because architecture is a competitive field. Sometimes you have these big business secrets. How do you do this? How do you work with this topic? Our doors are always open and our ideas are always open to share to others. And that's how we sort of integrate it into our own practice that we share with other people, also our competitors. We also try to integrate this positive mindset where we work within our company towards a common goal that everyone works together. We have a very flat hierarchy, so trying to have everyone, like it's always the best ideas that win in our office. So if it's an intern, if it's a partner or a founder or whoever comes up with a good idea for a project, that's what we follow. So we do this always throughout our projects as well. So if you see our portfolio projects, they would all look completely different because sort of the power is always in the project and in the solution. Within so. the company, is that applied to the different kind of disciplines? Obviously, MAD has quite a wide range. It's got, you know, product design, interiors, landscapes. Is information and knowledge shared between those as well? Yeah, so uh, we, we try to share that as best of the ability. So it's like, for some projects, we are both architects and landscape and interior. This depends on project from project. Sometimes we work with other interior architects or landscape, so we mix that up. But uh, for instance, uh, recently we did a competition and instead of having um, it as a sole architecture competition, we sat down to architects and to interior architects instead. 
for the competition. So we try to mix up and try to sort of take advantage of, of the knowledge people have. And also since we're situated in different towns and cities in Norway and we work all over Norway and some abroad, we try to always mix up the teams with knowledge. So we, we try to do this throughout the projects. And as an organization with, you have, a, have bases across multiple cities in Norway, do you think that that helps? I mean, obviously, in many instances, big businesses have their, their base in the capital and that can bring about with it a, a bit of a capital-centric kind of outlook on things. Do you think this geographical diversity of the company helps you in, in the long run to, to have a diverse set of views and, and maybe a, a diverse approach to projects? Yeah, I think so, because it's uh, like when I started at MAD, we were only in Oslo. We were doing projects outside of Oslo, but then we saw the value in having the different towns. So then we set up one in the second largest town in Norway and then later on. So over the last seven years, so they've been established over the years, and we see that this local presence really has its own value because uh, in a way we get closer to the... Um, client and to the people that where we work so we get more detailed knowledge about the sites and the places we're working and also since we're very focused on having the projects live by themselves we see that since it's not a centric everything is not part of the Oslo office for instance or Bergen then we see that the projects that are created are quite diverse so it gives us a much broader range in the architecture and they look quite different and act quite different and then the only rules we have is that we're trying to make more sustainable projects and that the projects should have this X factor or give something back to the community or to the town and the city that it's in. So it has to have this uh, connection to the place and context. Apart from that, there's a, it could look in a multitude of ways. Mm. And do you think that, you know, not just in Norway, but all over the globe, do you think that architects appreciate the benefits of collaboration? And do you think that's something that maybe architects could do more of? In many cases, obviously, the people who are living in the buildings might not be architecturally trained. They might not even be design minded. How yeah, do you kind of integrate them into the process? Yeah, I think uh, this collaboration is sort of the new architectural role. Of course, I haven't been an architect for a century, so <laughs> I can't just say what they did in uh, 1910. But um, to me, like how I would perceive it is that the architect's role has changed over the years. So you had, it used to be a very sort of, the architect said this and the architect was known by its name, not by a company's name. And the architect's saying is the rule. But we see that throughout every kind of project, there are more and more specialists, more and more consultants, more and more things to say. So the architect's role is a mix between sort of knowing uh, science, knowing social science, and also holding the aesthetics as a part of it. And I think uh, the role of an architect is, is to be more pragmatic and to be able to sort of grasp as many of these flexible things in because we integrate all of these things in our practices. Uh, and very often we work with uh, everything from the real estate agent at an early point, maybe the neighbor, we have known company that works with neighborhood involvement. So we always go out and interview people, talking to them about what they want for their neighborhood. That's also a thing that's coming. So it's always trying to integrate all of these things. And then again, the architects are maybe the ones in this mix that has the sort of um, 
biggest overview. So in the end, we are sort of responsible or people will hold us accountable for how it's going to look, even though there's so many people involved. So we have a really big responsibility. There was Yoni Clock there in conversation with Monaco's Charlie Fumercourt. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And as you might know, listeners, I do the Global Countdown every Thursday. Every week I choose a different country and look at the top five songs in that country. This week I had some fun with the Romanian charts. This time, actually, a listener asked me specifically to do Romania. I don't do this very often, but you know what? You're granting requests exactly. now. Exactly. Well, I have to be very careful with that because I, I <laughs> like... Set a precedent. Exactly, exactly. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that. And it's funny that you were talking here with Andrew about jokes, humor. I have to say, some of the tracks here, they, there is a little bit of humor. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but we will explore that. And let's say Romania, many people know as the land of the cheeky girls as well. You, you reminded that actually before the show. Don't tell people I reminded you of that, <laughs> Fernando. Uh, yeah, the Cheeky Girls, that, I don't know if they've travelled much beyond the U, uh, UK borders. Well, an excellent number two, that's what they have. have I, a quick, I love that track. <laughs> have a quick Google, international yes. listeners. Yeah, yes. Or may, actually, maybe don't do that. Uh, right, Faye, let's jump in. Number five, where are we starting? We are starting with two Romanian uh, singers, and actually one of them defined himself as a YouTuber, you know, whatever that means. Let's, <laughs> let's have a listen. It's You're Costa- such a cynic, Fernando. Exactly. Costel Bijou and Yuli Neantu with Lupi. Au, au, au. Ai mei umble, hai te bagă de toate Se vaită, strigăm la lună De parcă suntem lupi Au, 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 au dear Fernando. I mean, oh dear. I, I Can I just say right. to the listeners, Faye was dancing immediately to that. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like some kind of... Do you know what I was thinking of? Who let the dogs out? Do you remember that one? Well, similar vibes, but this time I think it's not dogs, it's wolves. Because oh. I think that... Because au, au, I think that's the noise the wolves <laughs> do in Romania. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> is that a... Is that a novelty record? Is that a serious piece? It feels like a novelty record because, you know, as I said, he's a YouTuber. I don't even know if his main job is to be a singer. And in the video, there's a lot of kind of girls wearing bikinis with some kind of wolves masks as well. So there's kind of... Maybe I should just check that out just (laughs) in the interest of research. Yeah, and then he said in the lyrics, we shout to the moon as if we were wolves as well. So there's a little bit of drama involved. Yeah, it's kind of a teen wolf Exactly, exactly. Uh, A favourite of mine from the 80s, (laughs) Fernando. It's a good start for the top five, right? It's a start. <laughs> it's a start, exactly. Uh, what's at number four? Uh, number four, we have, well, there's a dance routine to that, but I'll tell you later. This is Alex Botea with Mana Stanga Sus, which means left hand. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Să nu facem diferențe ca să nu 
Oh, that's more like it. That's more like it. Oh, dug a dung, dug a dung. <laughs> I like that. A bit more, tra- there, there's some traditional sounds of Romania, I would say, in that track. And I told you about the dance routine. Of course, the song's called Left Hand. So I think you have to put your left hand up mm-hmm. and then you have to kind of gently tap your hip as well. Okay, so I can I w- do that. I was looking at their social media, there's even grannies dancing to it, you know. Oh, I it, love this. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of a sweet song. I'm sure that, I, I don't know exactly the meaning of that track, but, you know, another kind of novelty, quite a lot of novelty but in Romania. But if it's getting people on the dance floor and sharing, you know, fun family moments, it gets my vote. And I love an easy routine as well. I think yes. even I can do that. Okay. Put my left hand up and just gently tap my hip as well. So Very nice. Um, <laughs> Fernando. Number three. Number three, a little bit more dramatic. And this is actually quite a popular band. They're from Moldova as well. And the name of, of the band is called Carla's Drinks. And I was wondering why is it called Carla's Drinks? Apparently, uh, the name was chosen because Carla is a character from the novels of John Le Carré, the British espionage novelist. Of course, yes, yes. Um, so that's why they decided to name the band. And the song is called Victima, which means victim. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Locul meu tu iei pastile să ador Și tu visezi că nu te vreau cum te ador Dar totuși nu ai somn Ești victima mea preferată Dintre toate fetele Ești prima mea That's a bit moodier, isn't it? Oh, it's very moody. Uh, he says, too many waves are between us. Love dies when you don't look back. Oh. So it's really, really dramatic. A bit of an air of mystery. And I, I, maybe just because you said about John le Carre, I was thinking of somebody mm. walking down a dark street, you know, the, the collar, to collar turned up. Yes. There's an air of sort of film noir mm. about it. And and they, the band, I think they always wear masks as well. So there's another oh, kind of mask. Oh, so it's COVID secure it's, as well. Exactly, exactly. This is, this is ticking all the boxes. Um I like the little uh, change of pace and tone we've set so far, from five to four to three, Fernando. What has got nearly to the top of the tree in Romania this week? I think that we choose a nice nice mix of hip-hop and pop music as well. He's a legend uh, when it comes to Romanian hip-hop. His name is Cabron, and he sings with uh, a singer, Theo Rose. It's a woman, even though Theo could, could be also a man, right? The song's called Fructu Interzis, which means the forbidden fruit. That, Fernando, feels to me like the most likely crossover track that we might hear in another market. Perhaps because it's this hip-hop, pop fusion, it sounds more... A little more maybe mainstream, perhaps? No, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting to see Cabron's career. He started in 98 and he's really like a legend. He had a hip-hop group as well. He released many singles uh, in Romania and he's still there. And I think he wants to kind of sing with younger artists like uh, Theo Rose. And as you say, it is a crossover track. It can be played in the hip-hop radio and pop radio as well. It's a nice track. And I always like to see the slightly more experienced amongst us. Exactly. Still getting there. Of Go in the spotlight, Fernando. You know, this is a perennial theme that yes, I like to return yes. to. Uh, wow. It's been a whistle-stop tour. We're already at the top of the tree. Fernando, I don't know. Could what we've heard so far inform us as to what is likely to be at number one? 
Yes. Well, it's funny because number one, it's really it feels very Romanian because she is singing like a rhythm called taraf music, which is kind of very local, slightly folksy and gypsies kind of uh, music from Romania. But it's the first time she's trying this genre actually because she, she's usually more of a pop singer. But this mm-hmm. song has been a massive hit uh, all over Romania. Let's have a listen. Her name is Oana Radu. The song is Can An Ozigreia, which means When I Have a Hard Day. Fernando, that was not necessarily what I was expecting. I like the kind of umpire-style vibes. It's very happy. It's and cheerful. She's very cheerful, and, and, and she is big as well in Romania. She was a semi-finalist of The Voice of Romania. And again, continuing the tradition that you don't need to win those programs. Usually, mm. the most successful of them, usually they're semi-finalists, or they're in fourth place or fifth place or whatever. Uh, and she used to be a children's TV presenter as well. I was going to say, it sounded a bit like a yeah. children's TV show theme. She's very yeah. glamorous as well, I have to say. She likes Lovely stuff. her makeup. Um, my favourite was Probably Carla. Well, well done to Carla. I think I think I like the wolf one. And another weekly segment here on Monaco 24 that we all anxiously wait for is Henry's letter from New York. Johnson, we're coming on the air here tonight with news that two NYPD officers have been shot. We are just getting citizen app video of the scene for you. This is 135th Street between Lenox Avenue and Adam Clayton Boulevard. That's 6th and 7th Avenues. We are told officers responded to a domestic incident involving a mother and her son. Police say when officers arrived, shots were fired. Last week, two NYPD officers were shot responding to a domestic disturbance call in Harlem. One of the officers, 22-year-old Jason Rivera, was pronounced dead in hospital on Friday. The other, 27-year-old Wilbert Mora, died on Tuesday. The gunman was shot by a third officer at the scene and later died from his injuries. It was the most fatal in a sequence of shocking gun violence incidents that have shaken the city in the opening weeks of the year. A baby girl becomes the latest victim of gun violence in the city, just days ahead of her first birthday. Now the search for the suspect who fired the bullet that hit her in the face. Good evening, I'm Christine Jones. From a mother whose teenage daughter was shot and killed at a, by a robber at a Burger King where she worked. I want my daughter to be the last. Those words from the mother, Crystal Bayron Nieves. Tonight, armed with an attorney. An officer and a teenager shot while wrestling over a gun in the Belmont section of the Bronx. The officer was released from the hospital overnight. And this morning, we're learning There have been five shootings within Eric Adams's first month as mayor. Adams, who campaigned for the office on a public safety platform, delivered an impassioned speech following the shooting of the two NYPD officers. Normally, when we do briefings like this, it's just the police officials who stand at this podium. I did not want that tonight. I wanted everyone to be in this same room. I wanted everyone to be here to understand 
It is our city against the killers. On Monday, Adams released a blueprint to end gun violence in New York City. Some of the measures are geared toward directly bolstering the NYPD's capability for tackling gun violence. The most striking of these is a plan to revamp a specialist plainclothes police unit. In their previous iteration, the unit was criticised for its aggressive stop-and-frisk tactics that disproportionately targeted black and Latino New Yorkers. It was disbanded in 2020 under the previous mayor, Bill de Blasio, but Adams wants to bring them back. The new plainclothed cops will be called neighbourhood safety teams. They're expected to be set up in the next three weeks to work in the 30 precincts across the city where, according to the mayor, 80% of gun violence occurs. But Adams's policy blueprint isn't just about the police. It also emphasises the role other government agencies have to play in combating gun violence. These include crisis management teams funded by City Hall that employ reformed gang members. They work within communities to de-escalate disputes and connect high-risk people to job training, employment opportunities and mental health and legal services. So Adams's blueprint to end gun violence is impressively wide-ranging. But as the mayor himself acknowledges, perhaps the main contributor to the problem of gun violence in NYC, the sheer presence of so many guns in the city, is out of his control. And let me be clear, there are no gun manufacturers in New York City. We don't make guns here. How are we removing thousands of guns off the street and they still find their way into New York City? In the hands of people who are killers. Constantly carving highways of death, destroying our communities. We need Washington to join us and act now to stop the flow of guns in New York City and cities like New York. On Wednesday, a new interstate task force on illegal guns will convene for the first time. More than 50 law enforcement representatives from nine northeastern states will meet. At the top of their agenda, we'll be tackling the channel through which illegal guns are transported through the region known as the Iron Pipeline. It's a stark reminder that, though it can sometimes feel like it, New York City is not an island. We end the show on a delicious note. From Food Neighborhoods this week, we have a recipe for a decadent weekend meal by the owner and executive chef of the Drunken Butler restaurant here in London. Let's have a listen. Hi, this is Yuma Shemi from The Drunken Butler in Clerkenwell. I'm the owner and executive chef of the restaurant. We've been here for about four years now and we're focusing on two different concepts. So one of them is our modern European cuisine with Asian influences. It's a, a tasting menu throughout the whole evening. We don't turn our tables. We like to spend a lot of time with the guests and introducing to our cooking skills and also to our team suppliers and the other concept is our Sunday uh, menu. On Sundays we cook my mom's and grandmother's recipes, so it becomes a Persian restaurant. I get to call both of them, uh, speak with them about their ideas, and then 
we tried to cook them as good as they would do it in the house when we were kids. So yeah, it's a great opportunity to be able to cook dishes from my childhood, but then also focusing on the modern part with the tasting menu. Today, I would like to speak about our barbecued lobster from the tasting menu. So we break out the meat from the tail, put two skewers inside the lobster to keep it nice and straight and then just barbecued about two minutes on each side. And then we let it rest a little bit. With the lobster heads, we do an oil. So we heat up the oil to about 80 degrees, infuse it with the lobster heads for about an hour. So it gives a nice flavor to the oil. And then we use that oil to baste the lobster tail with it to intensify a bit the flavors. We serve three little sauces on the sides. One of them is our enduya sauce, so spicy Calabrian sausage. Uh, we take out the meat, mix it with a chicken stock and a bit of uh, creme fraiche to keep it nice and silky, creamy. Put the sauce to the sides. Afterwards, we prepare our almond sauce, um, almond and uh, mezcal. So we roast almonds and cook them in almond uh, milk, infuse a little bit of mezcal inside, give smokiness to it and a touch of sweetness as well to balance with the spicy of the enduya. And then with the shelves of the lobster, we prepare a bisque. So classic uh, roast uh, the shelves, um, deglazing with cognac, a little bit of mirepoix, so small little vegetables inside to give a nice touch to it. Ice on top of it. The ice is gonna melt, but extract all the flavors of the shelves and of the vegetables. Then you slowly reduce it down until it's basically just a little bit of the sauce left, uh, which intensifies the flavors as well. Now you have three different sauces in front of you and the barbecued lobster. Now we get to the fun part of this recipe is the plating up. So you have your three sauces on the side, you got your barbecued lobster. So you need a warm plate now. I reheat everything up again and imagine your favorite Jackson Pollock painting. And then you start to just put the sauces on the plate as you feel. Lobster in the middle of the plate. We serve a little brioche on the side. Just reheat the brioche. It's nice for a scarpetta to soak up all the sauces from the plate. And there you go. Just got to find out who's the best painter between uh, you and your friends now. Enjoy. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best shows here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.